your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and grab them and open up with me to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, and we are going to turn to verse 16. John 19, verse 16. So we have been in this series studying through the book of John. And students, you guys have been in this series as well, studying through the book of John on Bridge Sunday. And so you guys are right there tracking along with us. But we've been in this series for over or almost a year now. And we've arrived at the moment that Jesus actually came to the earth to do. This is the moment where he is about to go to the cross. And I want to open kind of by asking a question. Who here has some form of cross on them by show of hands? Maybe it's a tattoo. Maybe it's a necklace. Maybe it's an earring, something on your Bible. Who has a cross on them right now? You're wearing a cross. Um, who has a cross at some place in your house? Uh, a sign or a... Uh, okay, so we know um, we have a lot of hands up. We're familiar with the cross, We have a cross right over here in our sanctuary. It lights up all pretty and has different colors. And probably if you were to ask most people, like describe in one symbol, what does Christianity stand for? Most people would draw or they would tell you about the cross. But the reality is that that I think for a lot of us, we can see a cross every day. We can wear the cross but, but it takes some time for us oftentimes and we can forget about the magnitude of the cross. I think we can even become desensitized to it or become used to it. We can look at the cross and it can be a normal thing. But my prayer today is that for those of us in here who have been Christians for a long time, that, that our eyes would be open once again to the power and the beauty of the cross. And my prayer is also, maybe there are some some people in here that you're not a Christian. Maybe you are interested in Christianity. Maybe somebody just invited you, and so you're just here to check things out. But my prayer today would be that you would understand and gain a, a deeper knowledge and insight. This is the foundation of Christianity. This is what our faith is all about. And my prayer is that today God would open your eyes to see the beauty of the cross as well. So let's start. Let's look at John chapter 19, verse 16. And basically what has happened over the past few chapters is that Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he he was arrested. He's been taken through various trials. And now this moment has come in verse 16. And it says, finally, Pilate, that's the governor of uh, Judea from Rome. uh, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus and carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him with two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Now I have an outline and kind of a a, a sort of a description of what we're going to be doing today. And if you look up on the screen, um, the first thing is this, that we're going to look at what happened On the day that Jesus died. Secondly, we're going to look at the prophecy that Jesus fulfilled at the cross. And then third, we're going to look at the most important, famous last words of all time. But first I want to look at this. What happened on the day that Jesus died? And you may know this, but there are actually four different accounts of the story of Jesus's life. Four different gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
And each one of them talks about the cross and the final story in each one of their accounts is the cross and then ultimately Jesus rising from the dead. And each one of them has a few different details that are included. So if you can imagine if you and four of your friends uh, told the same exact story, you guys would include different details. You would emphasize different things. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they do the same. But, but if we lay these stories on top of each other, what we see is this powerful picture of what actually happened to Jesus on the day that he was crucified. And so first off, what we learn is that after Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, the soldiers and the religious leaders took him to a man named Annas, who was the father-in-law of the high priest. And Annas questioned him. And even at that moment, Jesus asked why they were questioning him. And we read in John chapter 18 that when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded. And after this questioning, Jesus was taken to Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the reigning high priest, and he was taken to the Sanhedrin, which would have been the supreme court of the Jewish land. And there he was questioned again. False charges were brought, brought against him, but this time he was silent. And in Mark 14, we read, Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Now, when they're saying prophesy, they're mocking Jesus. And they're asking him to use his power to predict who was hitting him. So Jesus, he spent the entire night being interrogated, and now it's morning. And they took Jesus to Pilate. Pilate was the Roman governor who ruled over Judea. And Pilate questioned him, but found nothing wrong with him. But when Pilate learned that Jesus was from Galilee, which is in the north, he sent him to Herod. Herod was the ruler over Galilee, and Herod happened to be in Jerusalem at the time. In Luke 23, Herod questioned Jesus, but once again, Jesus was silent. And then we read that Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked Jesus, dressing him in an elegant robe, They sent him back to Pilate. And that day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. So Herod and Pilate become friends, united over mocking Jesus. And after more interrogation, more pressure from the religious leaders, Pilate caved and sentenced Jesus to be crucified. And in John chapter 19, verse 1, we read this, Then Pilate took Jesus... And had him flogged. So what is flogging? Well, D.A. Carson, he's a scholar and a historian. He writes that this was a brutal torture that was done in connection with crucifixion to create even more agony for the person that was condemned. The victim was stripped, tied to a post, and beaten by several Roman soldiers, either until the soldiers were exhausted or their commanding officer called him off. And the instrument that was used for a flogging was a whip with multiple leather straps. At the end of these straps were attached either bone or lead or metal. And the beatings were oftentimes so savage that the victims would die before the beatings were over. 
And after this, in Mark 15, we read the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace. That is the praetorium. This would have been like their guardhouse. And called together the entire company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, twisted together a crown of thorns, and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. And falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put on his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Now let's talk a little bit about crucifixion. Um, at the cross, Romans, they would have a vertical, uh, vertical post and a horizontal post. And the vertical posts they kept them in the ground to be able to expedite the process, but the victim would be forced to carry the horizontal post. And when they arrived, the victim would be laid down and nailed to that horizontal post, which would then be placed on the vertical post. And often the victim would have to carry his cross. And we just read in John 19 that Jesus did carry his cross. But at this point, he had suffered so much that he was unable to do so. And so in Luke 23, we read this, that as the soldiers led him away, they see Simon from Cyrene, Cyrene from Northern Africa, who was on his way in from the country and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. So this man, Simon, actually helped Jesus carry the wooden post to the cross. So finally, they led Jesus outside of the city and they crucified him. Now, crucifixion, it was a horrific torture device that the Romans had perfected over the years. The victim would be stripped and nailed to the cross with three nails, two through the wrist, one through both ankles. Once again, D.A. Carson writes that there would also be a small wooden platform that would be placed under the feet of the victim. But this was not designed to help them, but actually to increase suffering and to increase agony. Because uh, what would happen would be that the, the victim would have a difficulty breathing because of how they were placed on the cross. And so that they would be forced to uh, press up on that platform. And, and this would create this horrible process where it would partially support the victim and encourage them to continue to fight it out. And it would prolong the suffering for hours, sometimes even for days. Now, obviously... That's a very hard and heavy thing to listen to. You know, even as I was preparing, I was overwhelmed. I was emotional at times. I just had to sit, sit back and, and process it. And I did think about us in this moment, in this room, in the commons, watching online, and thought about the heaviness and how we would be overwhelmed hearing and thinking about this moment. So the question is, why do we need to talk about this? Why do we need to think about this? Well, if you want to write this down, this is very key that the cross shows us the magnitude of our sin and of God's love. The cross shows us the magnitude of our sin and of God's love. You see, the enemy likes to tell us two very sinister lies. The first one is that our sin is not really a big deal. And we can believe the lie and we can convince ourselves that our actions, our rebellion against God is actually not big. 
Like God may be overreacting. He's not actually taking sin as seriously as maybe he says or as the pastor says. And what we're doing is just fine. The other lie, the other side of the coin is that God can convince, or sorry, excuse me, the enemy, Satan can try to get us to believe the lie that God does not truly love us. And maybe you're thinking right now, like, man, God loves other people. God cares about, about pastors or about holy people or about saints, but, but I don't think he can care about me. There's no way. Well, the cross is so intense. The cross is such a violent and, and graphic picture that we are forced to jump to some conclusions based on the cross. And one of the things that the cross forces us to do is we must conclude that sin is serious. But because what we see is that Jesus is on the cross to, to pay for our sins. And so that's why Jesus had to go to the cross is to pay for sin. This is a picture of what it looks like for sin to be punished. When we read in Romans 6 and Romans 3 that the wages of sin is death, what we realize is this is how serious sin is. But also when we look at the cross, we must conclude that God loves us. Because the amount that you are willing to suffer for someone shows how much you love them. And Jesus was willing to suffer the greatest humiliation, the greatest pain, the greatest agony imaginable. And the reason is for you and for me. So you see, when we see the cross, we actually see the, the seriousness of sin and we also see the love of our God. All right, we're going to keep reading. Look with me at verse 19. It says, Pilate had prepared a notice and fastened it to the cross. Oftentimes, the, the victim would have a notice of the criminal offense that they had posted above them. And this is what it read. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate and said, Do not write the king of the Jews, but this, that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. So what we see here is that Pilate, and by the way, we've been studying Pilate for a couple weeks. He was a cruel leader. And in this moment, Pilate is actually trolling the Jewish people. So what he's doing is he is actually talking about and displaying for the Jewish people, this is how mighty and powerful I am and how pathetic you are. Because when Pilate puts up Jesus is king of the Jews, what he's literally saying is like, this is so, you guys are, are so pathetic as a people, like this is your king. This is what we do to your king. It was an act of great shame, and this is why the Jewish leaders, they were going and asking Pilate to change what he wrote. Because they're trying to do some PR, some marketing, and be like, don't, don't write king of the Jews, right? This guy claimed to be king of the Jews. But what's amazing is actually that Pilate didn't know it, but he was actually telling the truth. That at the cross, this instrument of torture, this looked like the greatest defeat for Jesus, but it was actually the greatest victory for Jesus and the greatest victory for us. And at the cross, Jesus defeated sin. He defeated the devil. He defeated death. And at the cross, Jesus did become king of the Jews. He became king of the entire world because of what he did at the cross and the empty grave. Let's keep going. 
Verse 23, it said, When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. And this garment was seamless, woven into one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. And this happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothing among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. So at the time, they could not go to H&M and buy a shirt for $6. Clothing was incredibly valuable and you only had a few different pairs of clothes. And so the rule at the time was the soldiers, whoever uh, crucified or committed the execution, they got to keep the guy's stuff. And so they're taking Jesus's garments, they're dividing them up. But what's even more amazing is that hundreds and hundreds of years before this, David had actually prophesied and predicted this in Psalm 22. And we're going to talk in a little bit about fulfilled prophecy, but let's keep going. Verse 25, it says, near the cross, Jesus Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Now let's take a moment and let's give a shout out to the ladies for a second, okay? Jesus had spent uh, three years investing and pouring into these 12 men that he was training up to be apostles. And at literally the first sign of trouble, they all bolted. There's only one who kind of found his way back, and that's John. But what we see here at the cross, amazingly, is we see these four women. And they are here ministering to Jesus, giving them him the ministry of presence in his most uh, painful moment and the greatest moment of his agony. And so th- this, is, this is a moment of girl power. I really believe this, okay? And all the ladies said, amen, amen, okay. Now, th- there's another really beautiful thing here. Jesus actually says seven different sayings during the time he's on the cross. It's called the seven words of Jesus on the cross. And this is called the word of relationship, that Jesus actually takes a moment and he sees his disciple John and he sees his mother and he says, now that I'm dying, now that I'm leaving, I'm not gonna be able to take care of my mother. And so he says, John, this is now your mother. Woman, this is now your son. And so he actually is taking care of his mom and making sure that John looks after her. Now let's keep going. Verse 28, it says later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We're going to come back to that word, it is finished, and we'll study it in just a little bit. Verse 31, it says, now it was the day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. There was actually a Jewish law that said that someone who was hung on a tree overnight was cursed. 
And this is greatly symbolic because Jesus, he was hung on a tree. He became the curse for us. But but the Jewish people, they desired for the bodies to be taken down because it was Sabbath, because it was Passover. So they asked Pilate to mercifully end their lives early. And, And we can see the way that this happens. It says in verse 32, the soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and those of the other. This would have effectively ended his life. And then verse 33, it says, when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Now, this is important because there was a great heresy at the time, and there are still different groups who believe this, that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross physically. He was more just a spiritual person, and so he didn't actually feel the pain and and experience the agony. But in this moment, when his side is pierced, the blood and the water, what we actually see is that Jesus does. He was a human. He was fully God. But he was also fully man, and he experienced the pain, and the blood and the water flowed as he died. Verse 35, the man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may believe. And these things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one whom they have pierced. Now you may have noticed as we studied that multiple times throughout John, it is actually written and recorded that Jesus fulfilled a scripture during his death. And so I've put up just a few of the scriptures on the screen that Jesus in fact did fulfill at the cross. Now what's amazing is you see these verses that are written here, Isaiah and Psalms and Zechariah. Each one of these books was written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born and before he went to the cross. God had been predicting with amazing accuracy what would happen to Jesus. Now, I'm not going to read the details of every single verse, but I included the references because what I want you to do is I want you to take a picture or go on our website and and grab the notes, or go on our app and grab the notes. And I want you this week to go and look up these scriptures. The reason is I want you to see with your very eyes how amazing and how accurate these fulfilled prophecies are actually. These aren't like vague things like, man, that could be interpreted any way. Like he is very explicit, the writers of these messages, and actually saying this is what will happen, and Jesus fulfilled these prophecies. Jesus was silent when accused. It says in Isaiah 53, a a great passage about Jesus. Jesus was beaten and crucified next to criminals. His clothes were divided among soldiers. We saw these details. In Psalm 69, 21, it says that Jesus would be given sour wine and vinegar to drink. Zechariah 12, 10, it says they will look upon him whom they have pierced. And then in Isaiah 53, it actually predicts once again that Jesus will be buried in a rich man's Now, why is it important that we consider prophecy? Well, you can write this down. I think this is so beautiful and so essential. Fulfilled prophecy demonstrates God's authority and it demonstrates Scripture's reliability. You see, right now, there are a lot of people who, who are saying that Scripture is not trustworthy. 
that, that scripture is not reliable. And if you're new to the faith, if you're a student, if you're a young adult, you'll see online, you'll see on Instagram or TikTok or YouTube, you'll see all of these different people who are supposed authorities and who are criticizing the Bible's reliability. But the reality is that we believe that that scripture is in fact infallible. That means that it is trustworthy. That means that we can put full 100% faith in it. That means that everything that God spoke will come to pass. And so we believe that. And one of the reasons we believe that is because of fulfilled prophecy. And the beautiful and incredible thing is that fulfilled prophecy, there, there are fulfilled prophecies about world events in the Bible. There are hundreds of prophecies about Jesus' birth, about his life, and about his death, and about his resurrection. And there are other prophecies about what is coming later. And, and listen, I, I want us to even think just for a moment about those few prophecies that were on the screen. A lot of them aren't things Jesus could have read in the Bible and then tried to accomplish, okay? Some of them are, but Jesus could not have picked who he was crucified next to. After Jesus was dead, he didn't get to choose that someone pierced him in the side. He didn't pick what tomb he was in. And so if he was just a man who was trying to orchestrate and tweak things to make it go to his advantage, to make it seem like he is the Messiah, it would have been impossible. The only thing we must conclude is that God is on the throne, that God did know what was happening, and that Jesus is who he says he is. You see, fulfilled prophecy, amen. Fulfilled prophecy shows us that scripture is reliable and it shows us that God is in fact on the throne. Let's keep going. Look with me at the end of this chapter, verse 38, and it says this. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. And with Pilate's permission, he came and he took the body away. And he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. And Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. And this was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. So they're preparing Jesus' body for burial. And at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. There was nobody else in the tomb. And so when Jesus rose, it couldn't have been just anybody. There was only one person in there. Verse 42, because it was the Jewish day of preparation and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now I want you to notice that Jesus, he got off the cross. He was taken off the cross. Maybe some of you have seen a picture or a painting of Jesus on the cross. Maybe you've seen a statue of Jesus on the cross. And that's okay. That is actually biblical. Jesus was on the cross. But he did not stay on the cross. And by the way, he didn't stay in the tomb either. I don't want to spoil next week. Next week we're going to be in John 20. You're going to find out the whole story. But I do want to say this. I have been to the place in Jerusalem where they believe the tomb actually is. I can confirm there's nobody there. He is not here and he is risen. 
Now, I want to go back to verse 30. And as we close, I want us to look at verse 30 one more time. And it says this, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. I want us to say that together. Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Now, I know we're, we're close to the end of the teaching, but I want to give you the title for the teaching today. The title for the teaching, it's on the screen, and it's tetelestai. Tetelestai is the Greek word that is our three English words, which is, it is finished. Jesus, these were some of his last words, the final things that he said on the cross. And I want us to ask a question just for a few moments and ask the question, what did Jesus mean when he said it is finished? Like, what does that mean? What is finished? Well, I think there could be a lot of things that are finished. And I could probably list off 10, 15, 20, but I really want to focus on three things that Jesus meant when he said it is finished. So the first thing is this, the law is finished. The law is finished. Now, let me explain. There are two parts to your Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. New Testament is about Jesus and the church. But in the Old Testament, a significant portion of the Old Testament is something called the law. Now, the most famous part of the law is the Ten Commandments. It's God's Ten Commandments to the people of Israel. But there's a ton more to the law. There's the ceremonial law. This is what you can do to stay clean. This is what's unclean. There's the, the food that you can eat. There's the food you can't eat. There's festivals. There's sacrifices. There's ceremony. There's all of this stuff that's included in the law. Now, now for you and I, I think sometimes we can have some different opinions about the law when we read it. Sometimes people just think the law is just kind of like silly. And just honestly, there are some very like weird parts to the law. Like you read through that, there's some bizarre rules in there. Um, one of the rules, you can't wear a piece of clothing that has uh, two different types of fabric on it. So like if you're wearing any polyester, if you're wearing skinny jeans, you are currently breaking the law of Moses. Um, so so that's, that's, that's part of the law. But I think some people can just be confused by it. And it is, like it's confusing. It's, it's, you read it and it's just rule after rule. There's a lot of very bizarre stuff in there. Some people can even feel like it's just super boring. Like, man, I'd like to get to some interesting stories or something. But, but let me tell you that the law is actually very, very important. It's very significant. It's not irrelevant. And the reason is because the law showed the Jewish people what it looked like to live with God. The law says God is holy. God is glorious. God is not like us. And God is coming to move in with us. And so we've got to change the way we act and we've got to adapt ourselves because he is glorious and he's holy. And so I think about it like this. Um, Katie and I, we have recently been getting really into The Crown on Netflix, okay? Do you guys know about The Crown? The Crown is, is all about, it's a, a show documenting the life of Queen Elizabeth II, um, who was an amazing queen from the 50s all the way up until like literally September. She passed away. And so it basically shows her entire life. And um, it's, it's a really, really fascinating show. Like basically my entire Google history over the past like two weeks has just been me like Googling different castles in England. I've just been really into it. I don't know why. I, we started watching it a couple years ago and I wasn't into it. But then like Her Majesty passed away and I was like, we got to watch The Crown now, you know, in honor of her. So 
what is kind of one of the most interesting things to me about the crown is that uh, the, the British people and, and the people of the Commonwealth, when they look at uh, the king, when they look at the queen, there is a great reverence that they look at the monarch. Like, you don't walk up to the queen and say, what's up, Elizabeth? In fact, you don't really walk up to her at all. She sets the tone in every single situation. And so if you do gain an audience with the queen, uh, when you walk in, you need to bow. Uh, When you address her, you address her as your majesty. If you uh, hold, if she offers her hand, you can grab her hand. When she sits down, you're allowed to sit down, but no longer before that. You don't really get to decide when the audience is over. When she rings the bell, you're done. You have to leave. And by the way, when you leave, don't turn your back on her. Bow first and address her. If you see other members of the royal family, don't just say, what's up? It's your royal highness. And so the point is that this person who I am with, she is not a normal person. She is a royalty she, she is the sovereign. And so I need to change the way I act in order to address her. And that's what the law says. The law says God is here. God is with me. And so he has a standard. He has a protocol for how he wants me to act. And I need to adapt to him if I'm going to be allowed in his glorious presence. Now, the problem is, and if you read through the Old Testament, what you see is that no one can actually live up to the law. The the, the law is so holy, so perfect that none of us can actually achieve it. And so the reason that it's so significant that when Jesus said and is finished, that the law is finished, is because, listen, and this is so key. When Jesus came to the earth, God didn't lower his standard. Jesus met the standard of God. And so when Jesus went to the cross, it wasn't like God saying, ah, you know what? I changed my mind. I'm not as holy anymore. It's Jesus saying, I'm going to meet the standard for you. I'm going to die for your sins. And now the law is finished. And this is what it says in Romans chapter eight about this. Jesus dying on the cross. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us. So if you're a Christian, the the law is finished for you because Jesus has actually satisfied the just requirement of the law. Now, because the law is finished, this leads us to point two, and this is so important. The law is finished, therefore my debt is finished. My debt is finished. Because all of us are lawbreakers, we have a debt against God. Sin is serious. We learned about that earlier when we looked at the cross. There, there's an image or an illustration that the writers of the Psalms use about the presence of God. They call it a, a mountain or a hill. And it's an image that we could think about as well. If you imagine the presence of God and you imagine the fact that the presence of God is like a mountain. In Psalm 24, the, the question is posed, who can ascend the hill of God? Who can go into his presence? Who is allowed in his holiness? And the answer is the one who has clean hands, the one who has a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to another. And what we learned from this question is that no one is actually allowed to be in God's presence because none of us have clean hands. None of us have a pure heart. 
We've all done things. We've all seen things. We've all desired things that, that, that would cloud us and that would dirty us and that would mar us with sin. But what it means when Jesus goes to the cross is that he pays for our sin. My debt is canceled. Colossians 2 says this. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made us alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. And look, canceling the record of debt that stood against us. So we cannot ascend the hill. We can't go into God's presence. But quite literally, Jesus did ascend the hill. He walked to the top of the mountain. He died on a cross on the top of the mountain and he paid for our debt. The law is finished. My debt is finished. And now I'm invited through Jesus into a relationship with God. And, and this also means, by the way, that, that my shame and my guilt is finished as well. Some of us in here, we feel so guilty. We feel so ashamed because of what we've done. And guilt and shame can be a good thing if it leads us towards God, if it leads us towards his love. But we got to remember that when we are accepted by God, Jesus has already paid for everything. The guilt and the shame are gone because they've already been paid for by Jesus. It is finished. And then this leads us to the last thing that the law is finished, my debt is finished, and now my old self is finished. This past weekend, uh, we had a baptism, and we had 17 people that were baptized. Praise God. It's a great day. It's a beautiful day. But at baptism, it's a picture of us joining Jesus. Jesus was buried, and he rose again. And in the same way, we are buried, and we rise again to new life. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. And so becoming a Christian is dying to yourself, dying to who you are, and stepping into the new life that Jesus offers. Paul puts it like this in Galatians chapter 2. We're going to study Galatians in the spring. And he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so when you come to Jesus, what you got to realize is the law in your life is finished. That, that my debt is finished and my old self is finished. I'm made new with Christ. Now as we close, I want to take us back to one more moment at the cross. Remember that Jesus, when he died on the cross, there were two men that died next to him. Two uh, re rebellers, two violent men who were justly being punished for their crime. And we, we read in another gospel that of the two men, one of them began to mock Jesus. And even in his own pain and suffering, he ridiculed Jesus. But the other one, he, he said, hey, stop mocking him. We're here because we've committed a crime. But this man is innocent. He's done nothing wrong. And Jesus says to that man, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. You see, all this man had to do was trust in Jesus and put his faith in Jesus. And he became a follower of Jesus, even for the last moments of his life. And really, these two men, they are a picture of the choice that every single one of us has. 
See, at the end of the day, all of us are either seeing Jesus and scorning and mocking and ignoring, or we're followers. And so today, each one of us have a choice to to either put our faith and trust fully in Jesus and say, God, I, I need forgiveness for my sin. I need to have access to your presence. I want to step into your love or to reject it. And listen, maybe you've made some mistakes before. Maybe you've tried and you failed. Maybe you've even been so fearful before that you've never stepped out. I was thinking about the two characters we read about, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Two men that wanted to follow Jesus, that were interested in Jesus, but fear had held them back. But now after Jesus died, they boldly went to Pilate. They actually started serving Jesus. And that could be like you as well. You could be, have, have held back, have stood to the sideline for years. And maybe today could be the day where you say, I don't want to be afraid. I want to say that I want to follow Jesus. So let's take a moment and let's pray. God, we thank you for this beautiful picture of the cross. For all of us in this room, our eyes have been opened once more to its power, to its majesty, to its beauty. And most importantly, God, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who is on the cross. And who rose again for new life. But now, if you're in this room and you are not in a relationship with Jesus... Today, Jesus is inviting you. Today, you've seen the foundation of our faith. Trust in Jesus to forgive you of your sins and to invite you into new life with God. And I want to give you an opportunity to respond to that. Maybe for the first time, maybe you're rededicating your life. But I want to give you a chance to say yes to Jesus. So if that is you, Right now, I want to give you a chance to respond. And with every head bowed, with every eye closed, I just want to ask you, if you want to begin a relationship with Jesus, if you want to rededicate yourself to Jesus, I just want to ask you to raise your hand in the air right now. Awesome. If you're up in the balcony, I'm looking for you as well, if you want to raise your hand. See hands all over the place going up. Praise God. Praise God. Thank you. I just want to give a moment for anybody else that wants to respond. Don't want to play with emotions, but I do just want to give you an opportunity to say yes. Awesome. So if you raise your hand in the air, here's what I want you to do. You can put it down. And I want you to just pray this prayer. It's not magic words, but it is a prayer to say, Jesus, I want to dedicate myself to you. I need forgiveness for my sins. I want a new start. I want a new life. The Bible says that if we put our faith and trust in Jesus, that anyone who believes in Jesus, we are born again. We will not perish. We will have eternal life. So pray this prayer with me. Just say, dear God, thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross. God, I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. I ask you would give me a new life. Give me a new start. Thank you, Jesus. Help me to follow you. 
Bring me around people that will help me on the journey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 